0: This is the Guardian.
1: Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de/slash Nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende AKs-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Hi, Ian here. Science Weekly is having a Christmas break. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, we're featuring a mini-series from our Guardian Australia colleagues called Weight of the World. In part two, we hear from three Australian climate scientists who predicted the crisis about the professional and personal toll it took. I hope you enjoy it.
2: It's March 2011, and we're in the middle of Australia's bitter and divisive climate wars.
3: Julia Gillard, you're It was a toxic, it was a really toxic time. Yeah, yeah. We were tense, I <laughs> have to say. Yeah. We were tense.
2: Since we met Leslie Hughes in our last episode, she's become a leading expert on climate change. Julia Gillard's Labour government has created the Climate Commission to explain the science to the Australian public. Hughes is asked to be a member. Australia can't afford any more delays on climate change. But now she's in an unfamiliar place for a scientist, in a media spotlight at the centre of a political storm.
3: A couple of days before our very first town hall was that famous protest on the lawns of Parliament House. With Julia posters and Ditch the Witch and all of that sort of thing. Tony Abbott was in opposition and was, you know, building up that toxicity.
1: I want to say that I do not
0: see scientific heretics, I do not see environmental
1: vandals, I see people who want honest government.
2: Two days after that infamous protest in Canberra, the Climate Commission, chaired by scientist Tim Flannery, holds its first community meeting at Geelong Town Hall. It's standing room only.
3: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Climate Commission's Community Conversation. So there was the six of us up on the stage... We were being filmed live for ABC 24 and for Sky News, so we had these great big uh, bright lights in our faces, couldn't actually see the audience. At one point, there was this crash. And my first thought was, Tim's been shot. It sounded like a gunshot. And because the atmosphere was so toxic generally, that was my first thought. And it was actually the poor old ABC cameraman who had fainted under the heat but i immediately looked over, realised that Tim was still alive and it was fine. But that just shows you the sort of heightened sensitivity at that time. Yeah, and we the all, fact we that all you had. You would
2: think somebody's.
3: Yeah, that it was an assassination. That, that was my first thought.
2: Fellow scientists Ofer Gulberg and Graham Peerman have been facing their own battles. In our last episode, we heard how Peerman was measuring the rise of CO2 in the atmosphere and how Holger Goldberg discovered the world's coral reefs would soon be under threat from global heating. In this episode, we learn how all three scientists faced incredible pushback for their predictions. What did they do once they knew? And how did it change their careers and their lives? I'm Graham Redfern, and this is Weight of the World, part two, ringing the bell.
3: Well, uh, thinking back to 2011, Julia Gillard had a hung parliament. So the independents and the Greens pretty much pushed the government into putting a price on carbon.
2: Putting a price on greenhouse gas emissions was seen as the simplest way to get emissions down. Instead of it being free to dump your waste into the atmosphere, now it would have a cost. I do want to take a few moments to explain uh, why I'm so determined to
3: price carbon. It probably sounded like a pretty radical policy at the time. Uh, first and foremost, I'm determined to do it because climate change is real. Uh, we have never... They actually needed to explain the policy and its consequences to the Australian people. So they set up the Climate Commission basically to do that, to be a voice about climate science and economic policy to do with carbon pricing, to inform the Australian public. We're going to get this committee up and running, uh, get it working, allow that work to happen, and then see uh, what can come out of this process. We We would generally give a little science presentation with a focus on local impacts where we were. Then we would take questions from the audience.
2: Why did it feel important?
3: Well, because it was very clear when you looked at the data that the climate was really starting to change way over and above natural variability compared to, say, the 70s or 80s. So there seemed to be a need to educate and inform people so they would make the right decisions about things, whether in their personal lives or their political decisions. And so my career kind of developed in parallel to that.
2: Mm. These town hall talks didn't always go as Hughes expected. When you're at the Climate Commission and you're going through these places, that their whole identity is wrapped up in fossil fuels. Yeah. You're going into coal country. Yeah. What sort of a reception are you getting there.
3: We got far better, kinder and more open-minded reception than any of us expected. In fact, often we would go into a community like that and we would get no pushback at all, hardly any sceptical questions. You know, we, we tried to build an atmosphere of genuine inquiry because there were so many people there that did have genuine questions that were a bit confused or, or did want explanations. So
2: what did people want to know?
3: Oh, it was enormously broad, but a lot of people wanted to ask questions about natural climatic variability versus a trend like climate change.
2: Australia's climate has historically always had big swings. Politicians and commentators who try and push back against climate action love to point this out.
0: seems our experts keep forgetting that Australia really is a land of droughts and flooding rains. Flooding rains follow droughts, which follow rains, which follow droughts. I'm afraid
3: the Dorothea McKellar poem, I Love a Sunburnt Country, has got a lot to answer for because, you know, it talks about droughts and flooding rains. And, of course, Australia always has had... A highly variable climate, droughts and flooding rains, and that is part of the Australian psyche of living here. So a lot of people would ask about but surely you know when I was a kid we had droughts, we had floods you know it gets hot in summer all the time, what's different now? So teasing out the difference between natural variability and a climate trend was actually a lot of what we talked about. We're still getting the droughts and flooding rains, but those two extremes are happening more often, and when they do happen, they tend to be more severe.
2: It's often in the abstract, isn't it, a little bit, but do you have to make it relevant to somebody in Geelong or Townsville or wherever?
3: Well, when we were travelling around the country, what we tried to do was present the climate at that place, and the impacts at that place, and try to relate it to things that were in people's minds or people's experience. We know that just talking about the poor old polar bears doesn't really cut it, it feels too far away and too remote from everyday experience. But if we talk about what's happening in your community right now, last week, this summer, that people can relate to, that actually packs a much better punch. You can't lie about the science facts. You've got to tell it like it is. But the framing of it is really important to get people to understand we're being honest with you because we have to be as scientists. But what we want you to take from that is that things are even more urgent for action than they were before.
2: 20 years before Australia is putting a price on carbon, Graham Pierman is the country's most senior climate scientist. One of his jobs is to brief Prime Ministers.
0: Care for your planet as you would care for your children. Their tomorrows depend on our actions today.
2: Peermann briefed Bob Hawke in the late 1980s and the next two Australian Prime Ministers, Paul Keating and then John Howard. We mustn't
0: do... Silly things on climate change, do things that damage our economic advantage. Are
2: you nervous going into a meeting to brief the Prime Minister? Is this a- I
0: certainly was nervous because I'm actually a very introverted person. But if you are confident in what you know as a scientist, talking about what you know is, is a very, very different thing. And uh, I didn't find any problem with that.
2: Peermann is presenting the latest science to the most powerful people in the country. And at first, he's optimistic.
0: All of those prime ministers listened, but I had no idea of what they took away from them in terms of commitment one way or the other. In fact, I'd have to say that Bob Hawke was uh, involved in fairly heavily new investment in CSIRO yeah. climate research. But subsequently, uh, there was no evidence that there was a change in policy as a result of that. It's long forgotten now, but in 1988,
2: a UN conference in Toronto recommended developed countries should cut their emissions by 20%. Peerman was there. The Hawke government adopted this target, but it was later dropped.
0: As it turned out, that would have been a really good target because it would have incentivised a whole series of changes that would have led us down a pathway totally different from the way we went. But it was very poorly based. It came out of that sort of bureaucratic uh, discussion. It wasn't very well based in the sense that turning around the energy system of the global community to reduce emissions by 20% in that short period of time, almost impossible.
2: Graham Pearman is very clear on what his role as a scientist should be. To present the science. And this is what he's doing to government, prime ministers and to the public here he is in a 1984 public information film called What to Do About CO2.
0: Well, it's, it's clear from our own measurements and measurements of other laboratories around the world that greenhouse gases are also increasing, uh, aside from carbon the dioxide. The scientist's and role, and as I see it, is to try to emphasise the uh, role of rational deduction. Uh, when we're looking at a risk like that, those tests, we find that... Uh, It only takes about a year for uh, gases released in the Northern Hemisphere to get into the Southern Hemisphere. Obviously, that means that it doesn't really matter who uh, releases the carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. It will spread globally and the effects will be global. But the reality is, is that a large part of the information fed into the bureaucracies of our businesses or of our governments is mythological. It's based on what people believed the world to really be. In fact, one of the prime myths is Mother Nature is so large that mere humans couldn't do anything to disrupt it. Mother Nature is actually not limitless, and it is in some ways powerless against the kinds of changes that were taking place. So this is an underpinning what I would call a myth, that somehow or other these things are so big we can't be making these uh, changes. But there are other myths, economic ones. You know, we have to grow the number of people we have every year in order to have an expanding economy because that's the only way we can live. Forget about the consequences of that in 20 or 30 or 40 years' time. They are myths, I think. Basically, it's not the lies that you should be worried about. What you should be careful of is the myths because they're persuasive and they lead to people being able to simply say, we don't need to think about it. We simply believe. And that's the danger of mythology driving policy development versus rational thinking. Last January was the warmest January. Last February was the warmest February. Last March was the warmest March in history. Last April was the hottest April.
2: 1998 is the start of the first ever global coral bleaching event. Reefs are being hit everywhere. Marine scientist Ofer Goldberg is at the University of Sydney and he's watching this catastrophe unfold. If this is already happening now, with not even one degree of global heating, then what does the future look like? A year later, her Gulberg publishes a scientific paper, Climate Change, Coral Bleaching and the Future of the World's Coral Reefs. Can you talk me through how you did that paper?
1: Yeah, so the, the paper came out of the idea that there was a lot going on, and it needed to be really sort of pulled together. You end up at this point where it's like, okay, if temperatures continue to change and the models are accurate, then by 2050 you're going to have coral reefs in conditions which will see them die in mass. Her Goldberg's paper is based on some straightforward assumptions about what
2: will happen to corals as the oceans warm up, but some people are not happy.
1: People were very suspicious. Mm. How could it be? You know, this doesn't make sense. I mean, there, some scientists said, oh, look, I, I agree with the analysis, but I can't believe the outcome. There were a large number of quite eminent biologists who really thought that this was you know, unusual. Today, the threat of global
2: heating on corals is well accepted. But 20 years ago, the suggestion that the Great Barrier Reef might be decimated within a lifetime felt incomprehensible. You know, there were things like uh,
1: death threats and, you know... Um, death threats?
2: How, how do they...? Well, they're just emails, they so they, right.
1: yeah, they and come what, in and, and, you know, just be really obnoxious. And, and, what are they saying? And, oh, I don't remember what they were, but it's sort of, you know, you're a communist, you know, I, I hope you die, or, you know, mm. and, and threats and so on.
2: You're also getting scientists that you greatly respect saying, hang on a sec,
1: yeah, this isn't
2: right. You're wrong here, and presumably you've got people saying, "Well, that's just yeah." Well, were they called alarmist? I think was it.
1: That's right, yeah. and and yeah. So I had an interaction with a particular politician who I like, and he had the same. He was like, "You know, it's alarmist," and I I remember chatting with him. This is Robert Hill. He's the Environment Minister at the time, and um, he had that response, and 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 so I said, "Well, no, it, it's it's alarm not alarmist." If this is correct, then we're going to see the Great Barrier Reef disappear. And at that point, the politics of it was they didn't want the Great Barrier Reef tied to change and global change because the Australian public could look at this and go, well, that's bad. We we don't want to lose the Great Barrier Reef. It's got all this, you know, tourists, fishing, people love it. It was a real interesting journey for me because, I mean, I was a young academic and, um, I wasn't used to sort of having 10 journalists hitting you hard, you know, wanting some sort of resolution of this. And and of course, it just was a strange situation.
2: You're a softly spoken marine biologist interested in the symbiotic relationship between corals and... Exactly.
1: I like sea slugs. Yeah. So,
2: and you become the centre of this politicised scientific storm. How are you feeling at that time?
1: It's almost like you get an ulcer because you're always on guard, making sure that you get the messages across accurately and precisely, that can build up over time and, and sort of depress you. I'm a really very optimistic person, but it does knock you around a bit. There's no doubt about it. And I think you've been in the same situation where <laughs> yeah. it just, you know, it's like why can't people just you know, go with the facts and let's discuss solutions as opposed to denigrating mm-hmm. I know
2: a bit about what this is like. In the late 2000s, I was writing a daily climate blog for a News Corporation, and every day for months, I'd get abusive messages, comments and emails how I was a lying piece of shit and how my head would be on a stake. Similarly, a couple of years after my own experience, Hughes and her fellow Climate Commission members, Tim Flannery and Will Stephan, are being publicly and privately attacked. Some parts of the media had a, <laughs> a dislike for Tim Flannery. Yeah. Um, uh, he's all,
3: he's, he was a controversial
2: character. You know, all too often we're seeing, um, the skeptical end or the, the, the end that wants to, the end of the debate that wants to see climate, the climate risk downgraded, taking these supposed leaked reports and making of it whatever they want.
3: And people like Tim had death threats and that sort of thing. Tim was getting them regularly as well as just horrible stuff being thrown at him. Uh, Will also did. As far as I'm aware, none of the other commissioners did. You know, I I would have the occasional horrible voicemail message left on my office mail. Oh, just sort of just being super critical and and calling me names. Uh, But I, I never felt personally physically threatened so I guess that all made us feel pretty sensitive to possibly being in physical danger as well as you know just taking the usual crap
2: do you think that those threats to your colleagues were they an attempt to shut them down shut them down
3: absolutely yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. Did it yeah. not make give you second thoughts? Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. This Look, is I, I, I
3: never I never got to the point where I thought I shouldn't be doing it. In some ways I think it probably just made me more determined because yeah. if you give in to people like that they win. And I was determined that they wouldn't win.
1: Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you're probably aware, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, meaning we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, nor do we answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we have not put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers who can afford to pay. Every contribution, whether big or small, counts. If you're able to contribute and have a minute, head to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. We've also linked to this on the full story page. Thanks.
2: In the late 1990s, the United Nations are bringing countries together to sign agreements to cut emissions. Australia's Prime Minister John Howard isn't convinced by the science, and his government is trying to find a way to protect Australia's fossil fuel industry. Tell me about briefing John Howard. Did you get a sense of, uh, of uh, what he thought about climate change?
0: No, I didn't, and uh, the the environment in which those discussions took place... There was this person rolled in from CSIRO to make a presentation about some facts, and then we went home. It's around this time in 2004 that Graham Pearman joins the
2: Australian Climate Group. This is a group of scientists and experts who release a report saying that climate change is a major risk and that Australia should cut its emissions by 60% by 2050. Reduction targets are still a controversial idea at this stage and the scepticism towards climate science is putting pressure on the CSIRO.
0: I have little doubt that um, John Howard's uh, ministry were heavily involved in making sure that CSIRO didn't make too much of the climate change issue. Why do you but think do I, have, I don't have hard evidence of that, but I think it's just the, the fact that nothing was happening politically, and there was no change in policy that really represented what the science was saying we should be doing. I'm fairly convinced that what was actually dominating at that time was the influence of the resource companies that were saying, as they are right today in parts of Australia, right at the moment, don't do this because it will interfere with our economy. And with no thought about the millions of species with which we share the planet. There was a huge pushback about the climate change issue from resource companies. Companies that owned coal or gas fields didn't want there to be any pushback against the exploration and expansion of those resources for all sorts of reasons. They didn't want that to to be jeopardised. Do you ever remember being asked
2: to not express your knowledge on, on what the science was saying?
0: Oh, at the time of my demise with CSIRO, that's effectively what actually happened. I can only assume that there was a huge amount of pressure put on CSIRO. Whether that pressure came directly from ministerial levels, I don't know. I can't uh, say that. But I think there was from a government level of some sort to say that we don't want people actually there talking down the future of these particular commodities. And uh, I don't think I ever did that. I mean, my argument would be that I've never actually advocated for a particular policy position. So all of a sudden I found myself in a discussion about it might be a good time to go. How did you feel about that? Uh, I felt devastated.
2: Why did that hurt you so much?
0: Uh, because I saw myself working with the organisation that I'd worked for all those years, and I'd have to say I loved, because I thought it was an important investment of taxpayers' funds, and that's the way I always viewed what I did. So suddenly had that cut off was devastating. It took me some time uh, to regain some sense of worth...
2: How did you manage to steer the course under extreme pressure from some of the most influential and and powerful groups, not just here in Australia, but on the planet?
0: I I think in part it's because I had this fairly, if you like, simplistic view of the role of a federally funded scientist in the community, and that is to provide the best uh, scientific information about a particular Topic that exists at this time, but I also think it should be the facts, the rigorous facts that come out of scientific investigations, that control what we say about these things. In 2013,
2: Leslie Hughes is having her own moment of reckoning. It begins when she co-authors a report with Will Stefan for the Climate Commission called "The Critical Decade." The report says what global heating means for Australia. If emissions around the world don't come down soon, then keeping global temperatures below 2 degrees is going to be impossible. Why was it the critical decade as far as the Commission was concerned?
3: Well, it was pretty clear from the science at the time that the climate was actually changing and changing very rapidly. And we were already measuring uh, impacts on the environment, on the severity and frequency of extreme events on health, on the economy, on everything. So it was pretty clear that we needed to wake people up to the immediacy and urgency of the problem.
2: But the chance to make real progress on climate change is about to hit a brick wall. Uh, I I think that uh, the climate change science uh, is far from settled. John Howard isn't the last coalition leader refusing to accept the science of climate change. There's also uh, Tony Abbott. Um, the fact that we've had, uh, if anything, cooling global temperatures over the last decade, notwithstanding continued dramatic increases in carbon dioxide emissions, uh, suggests that uh, the role of CO2 is not nearly as clear
1: as the climate catastrophists would suggest.
2: Tony Abbott was known for his rejection of climate science. I think mm-hmm. he described it as crap. Crap. Mm. He becomes Prime Minister and one of the first things he does within a couple of days, I think, is Mm -hmm. to close the Climate Commission down. Does that stick in your craw, having a climate science denier close down the Climate Commission?
3: Look, it was pretty bad, but it didn't come as a shock because we'd been given the heads up. So Greg Hunt, who was the Shadow Minister, was coming in as the Climate Change Minister and he'd told Tim Flannery about six months before that if they got into government they would abolish the commission. So it was disappointing, but it wasn't a surprise. But what Tim did was he got us all together in Melbourne and he said, look, I've got the word from Greg Hunt. I don't think we've finished our job. If I can raise some money, would you be willing to keep going? And we all said yes, because we loved what we were doing. We felt it was important. We didn't want to stop. And so that's what happened. So as we got closer and closer to the election and it looked like Abbott was going to get in, we had to put some plans in place. We actually registered the name Climate Council of Australia. We had a business plan. We were actually ready to go.
1: And
0: from today, I declare that Australia is under new management
1: and that Australia is once more open for business.
2: As expected, on the 7th of September 2013, the Coalition wins the federal election and Tony Abbott becomes Prime Minister.
3: So the election was on the Saturday. The government was sworn in, I think, on the Tuesday, and neither that day or the next day they abolished the Climate
0: Commission. The federal government's moving to scrap two climate change agencies as it continues to put its stamp on the public service.
3: And it was very symbolic to us and to many, many people, of course, that the first act of the government was to close down a science communication organisation on climate change.
0: The head of the Climate Commission, Professor Tim Flannery, lost his job today and the organisation was abolished.
3: So it still came as a bit of a body blow, even though we were expecting it.
2: You've got a, a government that's got a price on carbon. It accepts the science Yep. And overnight, you've yep. got the opposite of all those things, yep. pledging to get to repeal the carbon price and yep. get rid of the, the Climate yep. Commission. If it was a shock for you, it, I think probably for the community at large as well, it was like night and day, wasn't it?
3: Well, it absolutely was. But what that did allow us to do was to fund the Climate Council.
2: I think there there is a critically important role in in keeping the public informed about this complex policy area because if you don't do that, you won't get good decision-making in the longer term.
3: There were so many Australians who were so pissed off that that had happened. I mean, a lot of them were pissed off about Abbott being the Prime Minister in the first place, but that symbolic act of what they did really set the tone for what that whole government was going to be like. And there was so many people that were so angry and so frustrated that when we actually went public, and Tim went public about 10 days later to say, we want to start this new organisation, we're appealing for public donations, we need to continue the work of the Climate Commission.
2: Despite the extremes, despite the, the polarisation, the political polarisation, there are facts on the ground. Australians are feeling them now as our climate starts to change and they need to understand what's happening.
3: And all of those people who were angry and frustrated then had a mechanism to practically express that by giving us money. Mm. And that was really the reason why the Climate Council was able to raise $1.2 million in that first week. The pressure became, well, all of these people have given money. They have faith in us. They have expectations of us. We now don't have a secretariat. We don't have staff. We had one staffer who was Amanda McKenzie, the CEO, who, you know, the Climate Council wouldn't exist without her. And we thought, what are we going to do now? We felt this weight of responsibility of everybody's expectations. And then we had to have a plan to keep going.
2: For all three scientists, the attacks come not from the fringes, but from the government of the day.
0: A whole lot of lefties here, celebrating your guilty. We've signed the Paris Agreement. What a great, wonderful thing it was. All the excitement of the day.
2: One day in 2015, Olfo Gulberg is caught in an ambush. You were doing a, a trip to Canberra to brief politicians about the latest climate science and you were scheduled to be in a room with a backbench coalition <laughs> committee chaired by the MP Craig Kelly
1: So our Paris
0: target is the most onerous of any nation
1: in the world We were giving this presentation to the general you know different sides of politics and so on and then there was a, you know a call from Craig Kelly to you know ask if we would come and talk to them and I thought oh okay I had assumed it would be about giving this group an overview of the science uh, behind the the latest reports and what that science was telling us. That was my naivety. And so we went in there and um, not interested at all.
2: That day, Craig Kelly assembles some of Australia's most vocal climate science deniers, three people from the Institute of Public Affairs. This includes well-known climate sceptic Jennifer Marahasi. To her, Gulberg this feels like mud wrestling.
1: We had Jennifer Marahasi continually beating us around the brow over the fact that all surface temperature records were corrupted, but there was no way that tens of thousands of measurements were just sort of all over the shop. And even some of the people that were advocates for this being a problem, once they looked at those sort of studies, they realised that that was just not the case either. And so we gave our talks, short overviews of, 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 of so on. And then then it was sort of, you know, Jennifer's time. So she sort of stood mm. up and told us about how all the surface temperature records had, you know, were, were ina- inaccurate. And so therefore, our understanding of global climate change was wrong, and that, you know, it wasn't happening. So, mm. you know, let's go back to whatever. Mm. But I mean, I suppose, you know, you, you might feel ambushed, but I sort of felt quite encouraged. But I, I did at one point, you know, trying to Talk about the the facts of the situation and so on, and get it across to the people in the room and so on. And they just weren't there to listen; they were there to to re, you know muck wrestle and, yeah. and whatever. At one point, I started to laugh, and, and Craig I think it was Craig Kelly or somebody lo- like that who turned around and said, why, "Why are you why are you laughing?" And I said, "Well, you know, whatever you think of me, but you've got you know John Church, you've got Mark Howden; these are hugely respected international scientists, and and you know having them here today." But you're essentially not listening to them, and you're, you know, and, and it, was, it really was comical. I mean, it was sort of like some sort of really bizarre Monty Python skit.
2: How do you, as a scientist, cope when you're essentially under attack in that way?
1: One part of my response was to sort of double down, as they say in, in America, to become even more stubborn about the data and, and so on.
2: Her Goldberg has seen these massive bleaching events and he knows that the burning of fossil fuels is behind them. Without action, these crucial ecosystems are in danger of disappearing. So, can a scientist also be an advocate?
1: Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. How do you respond? I think you've got to be really careful that you advocate for good science and evidence-based decision-making. We have to be good advocates for change but not become activists. Mm. And, you know, that's not to say activism is a bad thing, but if you want to convince someone about the science, then you don't want this mixed in with the sort of activism approach. I'm not an activist. My job is to be the bald professor who comes along and talks about the detail, usually nauseatingly levels of detail, but but that's my role. I'm, you know, probably not good at gluing myself to gates. And my role, I think, perhaps is best spent close to the data and then bringing it Mm. forth in credible science. In Graham
2: Pierman's mind it's not his role to be an advocate. His responsibility is to lay out
0: the science. There is a very narrow line between providing scientific information and advocating. And I used to have to often talk with my own colleagues about being very careful about defining that line because as scientists people want to know what we know factually from our experiments, from our observations, from our rational uh, deductions and it's not really up to us to then tell people what to do. But the Australian
2: Climate Group, of which peerman is a member, is saying Australia's emissions need to come down.
0: The irony of that that was the very undoing of me, because I was regarded as advocating a policy change by the Australian government, which I denied then and I deny uh, ever since. Uh, what all we, what, I was ever doing was saying that if you put so much CO2 into the atmosphere, this is the kind of change in concentration you would expect, and on the basis of the best science we have, this is the kind of climate change you would expect, make your policies according to that. Peermann sees a clear distinction between
2: advocating and presenting facts.
0: And I implore all scientists to be very careful about that. It's very easy to step over that barrier. At the same time, we need advocates, people who pick up on the science and then take as a role the promotion of particular responses, be they state government or federal government decisions or standing outside of a company's door and demonstrating. These are decisions that people have to make if they're going to actually be advocates. I've never seen myself in that role because it's so anti the whole idea of the independence of science. What's the point of doing this if it has no value climate change, climate crisis, climate action, climate emergency, climate wars. In Australia, we seem to be obsessed with this.
2: So what if you're a scientist and you get accused of having an agenda? Does it undermine your credibility?
3: Well, I absolutely do have an agenda, and that is to save the world from climate change. So there's nothing wrong with having an agenda. I've always been an advocate of good science-based policy and will continue to to do that, as do most scientists, even if they're not as quite as active in the media as I am. So I think when you accept the science of climate change, then you accept that the logical extension of that is that there are policies that should be informed by climate change science in order to fix the problem. So... I think, personally, I have no problem at all personally with accepting climate science and therefore advocating for the best possible science-based policy to deal with the issue.
2: Some people would have a problem with that.
3: And I've never understood that. I do know that there are some scientists still out there, maybe old school, that focus on communication in terms of purely the science and that they think it's somebody else's job then to advocate particular policies. I've never really seen the distinction between those two positions. I've always felt, and certainly more and more strongly now, that the only moral stand is to promote science-based policy. And that's all I've ever tried to do.
2: Do you ever ask yourself... What am I doing this for? What am I doing this for? Could I have done anything different?
3: Yeah, look, I ask myself that all the time. But the way I try to answer myself and keep going is, and it's not just me, obviously there are millions of people like me doing their best to raise awareness and to to, to alter the course of history. I think all we can tell ourselves is if we were not doing this, how much worse would it be? You know, if there wasn't renewable energy, if there wasn't policies to reduce emissions, things would be getting even worse, even faster. So I guess that's what I tell myself, that I have a responsibility to do whatever I can.
1: To see the Great Barrier Reef die and and turn around and say, I told you so, is just not useful. It's like, let that water go under the bridge and let's get on with bringing people along to not only contemplate you know what we've been doing wrong but actually how do we solve the problem and this is a problem for society to try to get a a new sense
0: of what really should we be focusing on saying well where do we want to be it's the world that we want to live in
2: So how do our three scientists feel now, in 2023, in the hottest year on record for the planet, seeing their predictions play out? And can they see the possibility of a different future? That's where we go next, in the third and final episode of Weight of the World. Weight of the World was produced by me, Graham Redfern, and Camilla Hannan. Sound design and mixing by James Milson and Camilla Hannon. Production assistance by Melanie Chun, Jacob Wallace, and Daniel Seymour. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. We've also produced videos and articles as part of this series, and to have a look, go to theguardian.com and we'll put a link to that in our show notes. If you like the series, tell your friends and give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And thanks for listening.
1: Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten. Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de/nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende AKS-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung.